If you imagine like the Netflix or Hulu example, if it's $15 a month and you watch 10 movies and you're like, okay, I paid $1.50 a movie. Great, there's my value for Netflix. On the other hand, if you pay $15 a month and you watch one movie, you're like, hey, that was a pretty expensive movie. I just paid 15 bucks and I only watched one movie. So the metric that I'm getting at here is the cost per action. The cost per action is always a strong churn predictor. The higher the cost per action, the more churn you see. You're listening to Carl Gold, our special guest on today's episode of the podcast. Carl is the chief data scientist at Zora. And if you're not familiar with Zora, they're a software platform that helps subscription businesses manage nearly every aspect of their operations. In many ways, Zora is similar to MemberMouse, the company I founded 10 years ago, except instead of supporting businesses with 1, 10, or 100,000 members, they're supporting huge Fortune 500 companies with millions of customers around the world. As a chief data scientist at Zora, Carl has the unique opportunity to see the membership and subscription industry as a whole from a very high vantage point. Over the years, he's come to identify and understand major trends across the industry. But of all the things that can impact a recurring revenue business, he zeroed in on one major problem that plagues all membership and subscription businesses, and that is churn. In fact, Carl has become such an expert on churn that he's decided to write an entire book on the topic. In this episode, Carl and I dive deep into the topic of churn, what it is, why it's such a problem, and how you can strategically combat churn in your business. Carl truly has a wealth of knowledge and experience around this topic, and we're grateful to have him on the show today. If you're ready to finally understand how you can decrease churn, improve member retention, and ultimately boost the profitability of your business, I highly recommend that you listen to this episode in its entirety. And as a special bonus, Carl is offering you a discount on his upcoming book, Fighting Churn with Data. You can find a link to his book in the show notes of today's episode at subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 129. But if you'd like a free copy of Carl's book, send an email to hello at membermouse.com and the first five people who respond will get a free copy courtesy of Carl and his publisher. All right, that's enough for me. Let's get to the interview. As always, I'm your host, Eric Turnison, and this is episode 129 of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Hey, Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. We really appreciate you taking the time and excited to hear all the things that you're going to share with us today about churn. So before we get started on that deep dive, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do as the chief data scientist at Zora? Sure. Let's see who I am. Well, you know, I'm a guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I live in the Bay Area. That's the type of answer you expect from a data scientist. Well, <laughs> what are the attributes about me? I'm a guy. I'm this tall. <laughs> I live yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me say a little bit about what I do at Zora and maybe a little bit about how I got here. Uh, well, Zora is a SaaS platform that people use to manage subscription businesses. I think it's a lot like Member Mouse. Um, except generally for much bigger companies, uh, usually you know, much, and, much, much bigger companies. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Often public companies and multinational organizations, and also some very big names in SaaS. That you know, companies that have been SaaS in SaaS for a decade or more, you know, like that. So Zora provides the platform in which they can define their product catalog and you know what rate plans that you know, you bill people with and then also the actual billing and 
you know, integration with your finance system. And at Zora, I actually wear a lot of different hats in my role as chief data scientist. On the one hand, I partly do product features. I participate in the creation of data science-based features like machine learning, predictive algorithms. I also do a lot of analysis of Zora's customers looking for best practices mm-hmm. in the data and also analyses of oh, you know, our market, sales data, stuff like that. I've also done a lot of analyses of churn on behalf of Zora's customers. Um, so Zora has around a thousand customers at the moment, and I've analyzed the churn for several dozen of them. That was done as part of an analytics offering that we have here at Zora, where you can, you know, basically get your you can do analytics on your data in Zora, and as part of that offering, we did the churn analyses. Right. So I got to be a data scientist at Zora by a kind of roundabout route, I guess. I actually have a PhD, but it's in uh, neuroscience, actually. Although I should say I was a, a computer guy before doing my PhD. I was actually interested in machine learning. Uh-huh. I, I won't say how long ago, but before it was cool. <laughs> I, I, w- I was into machine learning. <laughs> but I, and I did a graduate program that actually was interdisciplinary about machine learning and the brain. And I ended up really focusing on, on the neuroscience for my PhD. Interesting. Yeah, neuroscience is a fascinating subject. Uh, I wish I could have stayed with it, but instead I got a job on Wall Street <laughs> after I finished my PhD. <laughs> and okay. I worked as a Wall Street quant for almost a decade before, well, making a sort of career change to be a data scientist. And one of the first things I did when I... Uh, became a data scientist was I got involved in some churn analyses cases. This was before Zora. So even in my time before Zora, I was getting uh, called on to do a lot of churn analysis. Um, And yeah, and that continued, that focus continued at Zora just because so many of Zora, well, all of Zora's customers are recurring revenue or subscription based. So they're all, you know, very concerned about churn. And all of our customers are very concerned about it as well. And so that's why this is such an amazing opportunity for me to be able to get you on the phone and ask you these questions because you basically have access to this data and you've also had these experience, like you said, of analyzing the 12 specific clients and this type of data and your, your takeaways from that data, obviously they're applicable to those businesses themselves, but it should trickle down and influence and be valuable to much smaller businesses, the kind of size that our customers are. 10,000 customers, 50,000 customers, 100,000 customers. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the really thing that's surprising to me about these churn analyses is how much in common all the different companies I look at. They all have so much in common, despite the fact that their products are so different. Um, And that was really what motivated me to start writing a book about churn. I don't think we've mentioned that yet, but I am writing a book about uh, analyzing churn. And it's because I saw all this commonality between uh, very different types of businesses. Hmm. Uh, And I think the people in those businesses wouldn't, you know, recognize it, you know, if they hadn't had the experiences that I had. Is there a specific reason churn ended up being the metric or are there other metrics that people are concerned with uh, the clients of size working with Zora? Oh, absolutely. There are other metrics. I mean, of course, you know, maybe the most important metric is your growth in revenue. Sure. But growth in revenue has to be made up of 
well, there's two main components. Either you can increase the number of customers you have, or you can charge your existing customers more, right? There's only two ways to increase revenue. And if you want to increase the number of customers you have, it helps a lot if you're not losing customers all the time, which is what churn is. Churn is, yep. Yeah, and it's it's normal. I mean, all subscription and recurring businesses are are churning customers every month and every quarter. Okay, it's just a question of how much, <laughs> right? Because right. it, it's a straight drag on your growth. You know, if you're growing at ten percent, well, if you're acquiring ten percent new customers, say every quarter, but you're churning out five percent, then you're only growing at five percent. So it's simple arithmetic how churn is a drag on your growth. Got it. And this is starting to get into my next question, which is just kind of a level set. What is churn? And you just basically said part of it, but is there a little bit more when you look at churn and think about it? Well, I mean, the most basic definition is that churn is your customers quitting. And it's typically in a subscription context. So there's an actual, you know, cancellation of a subscription. But it's the same thing if you have a product which is ad supported or supported by in-app purchases, um, you still want to keep your customers coming back. And if they don't come back, then you lose them. And that's what churn is at the highest level. Now, there's specific metrics around churn. One being, well, the standard sort of churn rate that everyone knows is, you know, what percent of your customers have quit in a given period? And people typically either measure monthly churn or annual churn. Many businesses also instead use a revenue-based churn calculation, uh, which you can just call revenue churn, which is also the same basic idea. It's how much revenue of the customers who quit as a percent of the total. And revenue churn is important when your customers pay a wide variety of prices. And by wide variety, well, you know, Zora is an enterprise SaaS company. So our biggest customer, you know, pays something like a hundred times what our smallest customer is. I don't know if that's an exact number, but it's of that order. Right. So it's very common for business to business products where your big customers are going to pay you know, 100x your small customers. And then it's very important to measure churn based on revenue. But that's about how you measure churn. There's also sort of different types of churn that people recognize. The most common distinction is between a voluntary and involuntary churn. Although personally, I actually don't like the term uh, when people say involuntary churn. I prefer to say, call it passive churn. But let me define it first. So involuntary or passive churn means that the customer failed to pay, and it usually has to do with a payment card failure, either an invalid number, expired card, or unavailable balance. So in a passive churn, the service cuts off the customer for non-payment. And then in a voluntary churn, that's more like your classic churn, uh, where the customer calls up, says, I'm done, or maybe they do it on the website. You know, they they click cancel, and that's a voluntary churn. Okay. I don't like to call the involuntary churns involuntary. I prefer the term passive because when you say involuntary churn, it sort of implies that the customer wanted to stay, but they couldn't. Right. 
Although, but the truth is, if you think about the times when you have been an involuntary churn, which I know how I have, I've been a churn on other people's service because I didn't update my card. Now, was that involuntary that I failed to update my card? No, I just couldn't be bothered. You know, I didn't like the service and it was more convenient for me to not update my card than to actually go online and click cancel, right? Exactly. So I feel like a lot of times when people call it involuntary churn, they're trying to make it like the customer's fault. When the truth is, it's for most products, it's pretty rare that a customer truly cannot pay. Now, that's a true involuntary churn. If the customer really, really wants to stay, but they can't pay, right? Right, yeah, I get it, yeah. I mean, if your product is $9.99 a month or $20 a month, I mean, come on. What percent do you right. think are truly involuntary versus the can't be bothered involuntary? Well, I can remember it, all of them in our business because it's usually they send an email very specifically and say, hey, this is my situation, blah, 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 my story. Can you do this for me so that I can stay on, right? That happens very infrequently. However, what you call passive churn happens every day, every hour, pretty much every 10 minutes, you know, yeah. all the time. And there need to be very specific strategies to managing that so yeah. that it doesn't destroy things. Yeah, there's very different strategies. I mean, I think for most companies, the passive churns are a smaller proportion of the total. But the key difference is there's different strategies to mitigate them. So right. for churn due to payment card failure, you want to uh, just get those payments through. The number one tactic for that is using what's called a credit card updater service, which most of the major payment gateways will provide to you. And that means that when the, a card goes expired or lost, uh, this service is automatically going to give you the new card number. Right. And that's one important way to reduce the payment failure kind of churn. Um, and the other one is actually to use a, a retry, some kind of retry system. So if a payment fails once, you know, you don't just call it quits. You'll probably want to try a few more times. Right. And this is something we have built in the member mouse. And I'm sure Zora has something similar, right? Yeah. When you of course. retry the card. Yeah. Yeah. And you can set different rules. And I mean, it's actually, and Zora is in the process of releasing like a, an AI based retry picker. And I'll mention that some of our competitors already have AI based retry logic. I don't know. Does member mouse use machine learning or AI for their? No. No. Yeah. Well, we're working on it, so you're in good company. <laughs> yeah. The thing about AI these days is because it's such a hot thing, what does that actually mean? It's kind of like when when organic became a hot thing at the markets and then everybody was saying organic, yeah. but there's yeah. true organic. And then there's just like, okay, I did something so that I can technically say that this is AI, but literally, is it really AI or do you just have like a monkey that gets prodded in the back room based on something and he does something when he gets prodded, right? Like. Yeah, yeah, it's no, very totally. touch There's and go. Totally. It's like a AI inflation kind of where everyone has bullshitted how much AI they use. So now everything has to be called AI, or you just sound like you're subpar. Right. So things right. that wouldn't have qualified as AI five years ago are now being called AI just because of this. You know, it's like an arms race to talk up sure. you know, how much AI you use. Now, we talked a little bit about the strategies for involuntary and passive. Now, what about voluntary? So voluntary churn is, it's really the focus of the book. I see it as like a larger and in many ways a more important subject. 
uh, because of what I said before, that if your customers are really motivated to stay on your service, then they're going to get you that new card number, right? Sure. It covers a lot of your payment failure related churns. But so for a voluntary churn, it's actually tough. Uh, there's no one thing uh, that you can do about voluntary churn that will just solve it because it really has to do with the, you know, the customers finding value on your product because if people find value, they're going to stick around for the long term. And if okay. they're not finding value, then it's pretty hard to trick people once they're already your customer. You know, you can do some marketing to get people to sign up, but once they actually know what your product is really like, it's harder to rely, you can't rely on marketing to make people stay once they've already seen, you know, the real deal. Right. And of course, your strategy in terms of how you handle voluntary churn is going to depend upon your awareness of what's driving it. And this is something we're going to talk a lot about in the rest of this conversation. Before we do that, another basic question, why is it so critical that membership and subscription businesses develop an understanding of churn and have a strategy for it? Well, because all services want to grow. I think that's a generally true. Yeah. Even if it's a free service, you want to grow your membership base. Uh, but churn is, is the, the holes in your bucket. Every month you're out there trying to acquire more customers, but every month, you know, some of the ones that you lost are slipping away. And it can actually be a very high number once you add it up over time, because churn is also cumulative. And that's the, I mean, many people stress that the impact of a churn today is not just the one payment that you lost this month. You've right. lost the entire future payment stream from that customer. So it's just a huge drag on your growth, especially if you also consider that some of your growth is going to come from the size of your customer base, just through word of mouth, you know, and, and viral marketing strategies. If you're failing to build up a large customer base, it makes it harder to use those organic growth strategies. So it's hurting you in many, many ways to lose those customers. And the thing is many, well, it's pretty standard that new businesses, uh, when they're just starting, don't focus on churn. You focus on acquisitions. And that makes sense because right. you need to have some customers before you can worry about losing them. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but if you make it to a certain point, I mean, if you make it past like six months or something, you've got to start paying attention to how many are you losing and what can you do to mitigate it? Because the thing is, it's a compounding growth effect. If you can just eliminate a small percentage from each month's churn, it actually has a huge impact on the long-term growth of your business because it, it compounds month by month uh, the loss or the gain. Got it. Now, let's dive deeper into this, into what you would consider the most prevalent factors involved in churn so that we can start thinking of ways we can uh, observe this in our own businesses. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to actually think about your own experiences with churn on other products. I mean, the most common reason that anyone churns from a product is because they don't feel like they're getting as much value as they're paying for. And you can refer to that in different ways. I, I like the economic concept of utility 
I don't want to get mm-hmm. academic or anything. And don't, I don't do anything like academic in my book. <laughs> but the, the, the utility concept is just this general notion of usefulness and benefit, right, that you get from doing something. So the number one reason people churn is because they don't feel it's worth it. And you can observe that in your own experience. The last time you canceled like Netflix or Hulu, you were probably thinking, oh, my God, I haven't watched this in six weeks. You know, it's not worth it, right? (laughs) So would it be too simplistic to say that it's a a product issue, an offering issue that you need to figure out if people are canceling based on the utility factor? The addressing of that is, okay, why aren't people sticking with this product or offering how do I make it better to match? It, could, it can be happening at different points, if you think about it, in the value creation process. I mean, one possibility is that you know, customers just don't find that much value in your product. Or it could be that you've priced it at more than the customers see value. I mean, cutting price is technically a way to reduce churn, but it's not the good one. Yeah. That's, like, that's like a yeah. last resort. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, other things are that there might be valuable features in your product, but it might be difficult for customers to discover them or to get uh, fully on board and up to speed. So a big emphasis in a lot of churn reduction efforts is actually in customer education. I already said, oh, you can't just market to these people. They already know the product, right? Well, you can educate them, right? That's not exactly marketing. I mean, it's often done by the marketing department because they're the ones who have skill in creating effective email campaigns. But the goal is going to be to educate people <clears throat> about the most valuable features and make sure they're using them. So that's one of the, it's a big reason for churn is if people just aren't finding the valuable part, even if it's there. Yeah, we certainly experience that in in our business and even as a user of other people's products, I can tell when there's a company that helps me accomplish something very quickly through some sort of checklist, uh, some sort of letting me know that I've done something, taking action. This helps me on a personal basis more to stick with the product. The sooner I can accomplish something through some sort of education or them helping me to do it, the more likely I'm going to use their thing. Yeah, and many companies will have like a, what they call a customer success team who's responsible for, well, there's different ways to do it. I mean, one is to do onboarding with new customers. Uh, if you're monitoring the actions that customers take, you might they might have checklists like, okay, we want to, in the first month live, we want to see customers accomplish these five goals as far as using the product features. And then they reach out proactively, either by email or with a call, you know, later on. So definitely customer education or lack of customer education can be a big factor in churn. But, you know, something else which is really big in churn, which people, I think, often fail to recognize is just it's the other alternatives that people have. Because subscription products nowadays, it's not like... Uh, the 20th century utilities when you only had one choice, right? Back in the day, you only had one choice for your phone service. Are you going to quit? Are you going to cancel? No, you only have one choice. But for almost any subscription product nowadays, you have 
customers have a lot of choices. In entertainment, you know, if you're sick of Netflix, you can go to Hulu or Amazon Prime, or now there's going to be a Disney streaming service. Um, similarly, for a SaaS product, like Member Mouse and like Zora, our customers have the option of building their own. So for any you know, SaaS product, that's software as a service, that you sell to other software companies, I should say, they can all build their own. So they have a build versus buy decision, and, that, and that's their alternative. And it's just true for just about every subscription product that you can name nowadays, that there's another alternative that people are thinking about when they evaluate your product. And they're also thinking, okay, what's the cost of this alternative? And how hard would it be for me to switch? Um, so that's what you call like a switching cost. And those are hard things to actually measure objectively, mm -hmm. how hard it is to switch and, you know, how many, I mean, you should know about what alternatives your customers have or have when you launched your business. But when you are thinking about churn, uh, it's very important to think about where are they going? What, what's the alternative that people are choosing instead? And I think that there is the... One final one in the factors involved in churn on the top of the list, uh, a more basic one, right, that you have mentioned in, in your book and, and some talks that you've given, just ability to pay, right? Yeah, no, of course, ability to pay is always behind everything. <laughs> I mean, it's less of an issue for consumer products because consumer products are usually priced low enough. But the thing is, it, it's also always relative to your customer's situation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are many people for whom $20 a month for some, you know, a streaming service might not be that much, but then there are other people who it is. And the hard thing with churn is you never really know where your customer sits. And it's the same for Zora and Member Mouse. You know, we don't really know if our customers, how much they can afford to pay. I mean, you know, we're guessing, right. but you never really know. And it ties into the utility as well. There's often not just a question of are they able to pay, but it's like are they willing to pay? Willing to pay, right? For that level of utility in comparison to their other alternatives, so all these things end up, you know. So when you've done the analysis for the clients in terms of churn, is this are looking at these something that you went through for each of those individual clients and trying to figure out what these were? Not exactly, actually. <laughs> not all okay. of them, because. Um, like I mentioned, I mean, ability to pay, you never really know. Subjective utility, also, you don't really know what people think. And you don't really know about the alternatives <laughs> that they have either. I mean, you might a little bit, but it's also not really objective. So actually, what most churn analysis focuses on is actually the engagement of the customer uh, with the product, and specifically with different aspects of the product. Okay. So the focus of the analysis is always on actual the customer behavior that they take while they're using the product. We can say more about this in a little bit, but based on the behavior, you can you know see who's more or less likely to churn, and you know which behaviors are most significant in churn versus non-churns. I see. Is there such a thing as average churn rate in any given industry or across the board? Uh, not really. Um, you could maybe come up with average churn rates if you look more specifically in a particular, well, if you look at not only the industry, but also 
Uh, is it a consumer product or a business product, which is a big divide. And in the same industry, you, can, you have both. And the other factor is, of course, the maturity of the company. It's almost universally true that a young company uh, is going to have a higher churn rate than a mature company. And there's partly just a survival factor to that, right? Sure. Companies with high churn rates don't live long enough to become mature. So if you take a pool, <laughs> a pool of mature yeah. companies, they're almost all going to have lower churn rates than young, new companies. But it's kind of true that if you get specific like that, and let's say we were to say, look at all consumer SaaS companies that are like, you know, under two years old and under five million in revenue, yeah, there'd probably be a pretty consistent range, right? And then if mm-hmm. we looked at all, you know, B2B, like if you take Zora and you put Zora in a cohort of other B2B SaaS companies that are, you know, more than 10 years old, we're probably all our churn rates in a certain range as well. But the most important thing is you, you need to know about the maturity of the company because it's always true that more mature companies will have lower churn. Okay. And, it, and from your experience with the data, when you visualize that spectrum in your head from new to mature, are there any numbers that, generally speaking, pop up that you would you know, ballpark expect to see for new and then to mature and then whatever is in between for what their churn rate in a healthy sense? Yeah, I mean, I usually quote churn on on annual numbers. Um, Mm -hmm. I know many people in smaller businesses typically use monthly numbers. And the surprising thing is how much churn adds up over one year. But, you know, immature companies often have churn, you know, above 40 to 50% per year. And they can still survive and thrive that for a consumer company. So that's like kind of like one benchmark is, yeah, think, you know, new, small company, 50% annual churn should not be that surprising. Although there are many that are a lot better. Sure. And then for, you know, a mature company that's been around for a while, it should definitely be below 20%, say. Most public companies that actually quote their churn rate have below 10% annual churn. Mm-hmm. If a mature company that's been around for a while has more than 20 25% annual churn, that's kind of a red flag. Their investors are probably going to be worrying about that. That makes sense. So best in class is kind of like below 10%. Worst in class, but still surviving, you're going to be up above 50% annually. And I don't think it's possible for a company to survive with more than like 75% annual churn. I don't think, I, I don't think I've ever seen <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, that's, no, but that's you'd be surprised if you just have like, I forget the exact number, but it's something around 7 or 8% a month, you know, will hit mm-hmm. you up, in, you know, into those high numbers annually. So it's a big difference between, you know, below 5% a month and above 5% a month. Well, that's the same that's true in terms of when you just look at the growth and the revenue of the company in subscription businesses. It's not just about month over month. It's about, okay, well, what is the lifetime value of this customer? And so the length of time people are customers dramatically changes what your revenues look like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, churn... I mean, there's two key factors in customer lifetime value. One is how much your customers pay periodically, 
whether it's monthly or annually. But the other key factor in your lifetime value is the churn. How long do you expect them to last as a customer? Which is exactly the flip side of churn. And there's even a simple calculation you can do to go from the churn rate to the expected lifetime. Right. In your book, you have a method, if I can say that, that you teach in terms of how businesses can work with and address churn in their operations. And before we talk about that, let's go into a little bit about why it is that churn is so hard to fight. Well, we've touched on a number of these points already, and I'll I'll kind of see if I make sure that we've kind of covered them all. I mean, the one thing is that to really reduce churn in a long-term way, you actually have to get more value to your customers. Like I mentioned, there's a few different ways to achieve that. You know, you could make new and better features on your product if it's a software product or new and better content if it's some kind of you know, media or content-driven product. So better product, I think, is actually always the best way to reduce churn. But making a better product is hard. <laughs> if it were easy, everyone would have done it already. Right. The other hard thing with churn is that it ends up falling in between different departments. And that makes it very hard because, well, I just mentioned, okay, making a better product, whose job is that? Well, your product manager or your producer, you know, if it's content. Right, but where do they get the information on which to determine how to make it better? Right, exactly. Well, that's one of the outcomes of the analysis process that I explain in the book. There's also these other groups, like there, I mentioned the customer success and customer support representatives, and they're supposed to be reducing churn too. Um, and then there's also people who are, you know, designing your pricing, who, you know, they can impact churn. I mentioned that, you know, you don't want to cut your price to reduce churn, but there is such a thing as getting people onto the right plan. If you have multiple plan levels, and someone's selected an inappropriate plan, maybe because it's too expensive or has too many features. So right. you can always get people onto the right plan. And that's not the same as, you know, giving them a discount. Right. But so, yeah, I mean, it becomes hard to fight churn also because it's very hard to predict churn. Even when we do all the analysis and use a state of the art predictive algorithm, kind of getting ahead of myself here, but you never get great accuracy in terms of. I mean, you never can get a crystal ball that tells you who's going to churn because there's so many factors that you don't know, especially in the consumer mind where people might decide to churn and then spend, you know, weeks or months until they actually find time to do it, right? So it's very hard to predict who's going to churn. And then once they've made up their mind that they're not getting value, it's very hard to change their mind. Especially if they've chosen an alternative. Yeah, exactly. Especially if they have a good alternative in mind, you know, and they're already, you know, moving towards it. So I, I always tell people there's no silver bullets with churn. Well, sometimes there are, but if there, there is, it, it means that something's wrong and someone didn't do their job. Like if there's a bug in your software, right. that's, then <laughs> that's yes. a silver bullet. <laughs> yes, our, yes. Our buy now button wasn't working for two months. <laughs> There's a silver bullet for you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If you find a silver bullet to reduce churn, it's a sign that someone else didn't do their job, basically. Okay. Now, moving on to, you've had a lot of experience with this. You've seen a lot of the cases. So based on that, you decide to write a book. And in this book, you go over 
how you think people from a strategy perspective can address churn. So can you give a high level uh, outline of what you think the best approach is based on what you've seen? Yeah, um, definitely. And the most important thing, it's easy to say, harder to do. The most important thing is just to have a good set of metrics which measure the engagement and health of your customers and to make sure that those metrics are available to all the different groups in your company that are tasked with fighting churn. Because I mentioned before, one of the problems is that there's all these different groups that can impact churn, uh, but they all work with different tools and they have different methods for doing their job. So it's actually a mistake to think that you can just do a predictive algorithm, right? Which is what many people, an AI, right? AIs to reduce churn, they actually don't really help that much because all these different groups, what they actually need is knowledge about the causes of churn and who's likely to churn. And the best way to do that is to come up with a good set of customer metrics, which really capture the engagement of your customers. So if you are a data science or a statistics person, you actually, you call this feature engineering. Eric, do you know the term feature engineering? Because I think it's confusing. I don't. No, I haven't heard it. Then we'll just, I mean, if you're a data person and you're listening to this, you probably know what I mean by feature engineering. But it basically means finding the best measurements, the best measurements that capture, you know, what it is you're trying to learn about your customers. So by a measurement, I mean... Basically, it it starts out with simple metrics like how many times did they log in last month, right? And that's a metric because the the logins are the data, right? You have, let's say you're tracking logins and they're in your your database. Uh, But just tracking those things in your database doesn't tell you anything. So you make a metric of logins per month for every customer. And what you'll find if you analyze churn is guess what? People who log in more churn less, right? It's pretty obvious. But this is just the most obvious example, and it's actually one of the worst ones because logins is a very weak metric for measuring customer engagement because it only tells you that they signed in. It doesn't tell you if they did anything of value while they were signed in. So the better metrics are actually ones that measure uh, the activities that actually produce value for the customer. And it's Mm -hmm. different for every business how closely you can measure those moments of value creation. Because for many services, the value that you create is going to be totally subjective uh, for the customer. Like if it's a video watching service, you can know they watch the video, but usually you're not going to know how much they liked it unless they actually like it by, you know, clicking the thumbs up. You have to rely on things like, oh, did they finish the video? Did they share the video? Did they recommend the video? But those are all good metrics for, uh, you know, say, a hypothetical uh, media company. And in, in Member Mouse, basically what we do is, you know, we look at, did they actually install and activate the plugin? Did mm-hmm. they actually configure anything, like add a payment method? Did they create a product? Like... So specifically in our business, that makes sense to us. Yeah, and, I, and since Member Mouse's business is similar to Zora's, I mean, I'll tell you our most important metrics are, guess what? How much money our customers are making. Right, yeah. Member Mouse and Zora are a little bit unusual in that we can really measure the financial value that our users derive 
Right. So those are actually great metrics for churn if you have them. But most businesses don't have that direct measure of value. Sure. But the, if you don't have anything that direct, the key is to make measurements of things that are as close as possible uh, to the value. So I almost shouldn't even use the login example because, I mean, like I said, logins are like the worst measure of engagement. It's always better to look at the activities where the, that occur when the customer is really successful on the service. Um, and there you'll always see that the more of those things they do, the better. Well, almost always, if it's really an engaging feature. So the way you, you analyze that, and this is the main, I'm getting into the main technique of the book, is to come up with those metrics. And usually it's an, actually an iterative uh, and scientific process. That's the whole point of the book, is that you're not going to come up with these great customer metrics by having like a brainstorming session, uh, <laughs> you'll sit around the table, you'll take a vote, and then you'll be done. No, no, that's not how it works. You come up with an initial set of metrics, and then you actually do these churn experiments where you look to see, okay, if I think customers creating documents on my service is good, let's say your service allows creation of documents, then you should see that people who create more documents churn less. And you can measure that. Uh, scientifically, and then you'll know if it's true or not. <laughs> and if it's right. true, then that's one arrow in your quiver that you can use to figure out what's valuable and who's going to churn. If it's not true, and you actually see that people creating documents has no bearing on churn, then that actually tells you something else important. And you got to talk to your product designers hey, people who do this don't seem to be getting anything out of it. And that, it's a whole other conversation there. So that's kind of like your basic churn metric. You figure out some metrics and you see, okay, the people with who are getting good scores on these metrics, are they actually churning less? So in listening to you talk about churn, it actually becomes a lot more of a exciting thing because it's so easy for things just to be minimized down to a label and a metric. And it's and then it becomes kind of lifeless. It's like, oh, your churn is this. But basically in what we're uncovering here and diving into is like, is bridging the art and science of a business. Churn can help you kind of, yes, because the art is, all the metrics you're measuring and how you handle that and the conversation you have interdisciplinary between the teams of the company and your customers, feedbacks into literal scientific data that you can then have that iterative um, response to. And then over time, you're improving the business. So, And data has to be a part of the more mature companies just because there's so many moving pieces, so many people have to coordinate. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also, I mean, so many opinions, <laughs> you know. Right. The data on churn, it's actually, I believe, better than a survey. I mean, this, the thing that most product designers do is they survey their customers. They get NPS scores. The well-known problems with surveys are that only your happiest and your angriest customers <laughs> will answer the survey. Yeah. The great yeah. thing about these churn studies is that everyone is in the study. Every customer counts. And they vote with their feet, not with their voice you see who stays and who goes. And then you look at what they did while they were there. And this is the greatest objective source uh, of information about the product. And so many companies don't use it. 
I mean, there's technical issues. I mean, I realize it's sure. a challenge. I look, hey, I'm writing a whole book about how to do it. So if it were obvious, I wouldn't have to write a book. And then, but even beyond the challenge of what the book talks about, which is the theory and the, the strategy of it, well, now you have to actually implement that. What are the tools involved in implementation? What are the custom systems to track that data? You know, these are questions that each company is going to have to answer. Yeah, the answers, unfortunately are not one size fits all. Like I mentioned earlier, it's amazing that the the same analytic techniques that I describe in the book will work for any company to come up with this great set of customer metrics that really let you see who's getting value and from where. But what you do with that information is not one size fits all at all. It's different for every company and it depends. Are you a content company or are you a SaaS company? Are you a consumer company or a B2B company? And how many resources? Because pretty much anything you do to uh, try to reduce churn is going to take some kind of resources. Right. If you're planning new product features, of course, you know that takes the time and effort of the product creators. But things like customer success that takes resources. You need to have people whose job it is to do that if you're going to do it. Or, you know, customer education campaign emails. It's, they're not, those emails are not going to write themselves. So it really, it really takes resources. So that's one fact ingredient in your churn mitigation strategy is what kind of resources can you bring to bear on the problem, as well as, you know, the details of your industry and product and all that. Right. And this is why what I was alluding to earlier when I said like this conversation really opens up the value and the diversity of churn because it's literally, these are all the things that are the challenges of growing and and running a business. It's baked into there, right? Yeah, it's exactly all the, the problems you're already dealing with. Exactly. And the churn data is really a new window that lets you investigate those questions objectively. Like I said, you look at what how your customers, how they vote with their feet. Either they stay or they go, and then you can look at what they did. And that gives you actual objective information about feature usage and, and value creation. So you mentioned earlier about, we touched on one factor of pricing and, and how lowering a price isn't necessarily the way to go. But I think this is a common thing. I mean, it seems like an obvious thing that comes to people's mind. Oh, if people are canceling, oh, or my price is too high. That's it seems to be the most obvious thing that jumps to mind. But in your experience, do you actually see in the data that there is a correlation between pricing and churn? And is it what people think it is? Uh, yes and no. So there is definitely a correlation almost every service that I look at where if you take, let's say, I'm going to talk about metrics again. Let me t- describe the metric we want first. So before I was just talking about metrics that measure an activity. So say it's documents created per month, right? So if you have a metric of documents created per month, and then you also know what everyone's paying per month, right? You can actually calculate a metric which is cost per document or cost per basically anything. If you imagine like the Netflix or Hulu example, when you think about if you're getting a good deal on Netflix, you think, oh, I watched, you know, 10 movies last month and I forget what Netflix is now. 15 bucks? I can't remember. Anyway, if it's $15 a month and you and you watch 10 movies and you're like, okay, I paid $1.50 a movie. Great. There's my value for 
Netflix. On the other hand, if you paid $15 a month and you watched one movie, you're like, hey, that was a pretty expensive movie. I just paid 15 bucks and I only watched one movie. So the metric that I'm getting at here is the cost per action, whatever it is on your service. The cost per action is always a strong churn predictor. The higher the cost per action or whatever it is, it's a value creating action, right? The higher the cost per action, the more churn you see. Now, that's the yes answer to the question. The no answer to the question is that doesn't mean that people who pay more churn more. If you have multiple plans on your product, like a, a good, better, best uh, pricing strategy, you almost always see that the people on more expensive plans churn less. So if you simply look at what people are paying alone, and your product has multiple price points. This doesn't count if there's only sure. one price point. But if you have multiple price points, you'll almost always see that the people who pay the most turn the least. Well, why? Uh, because they're usually the ones who are also using it the most. They're the most invested. Uh, and so there's like a, in data science, we say a selection bias. What that just means is your most enthusiastic customers already signed up for your premier plan. Sure. So it makes sense that when you look at people on the premier plan, they churn the least. And usually they have very good metrics on that cost per action metric. But of course, it's also true that if someone's on your premier plan and they're not using the product that much, then absolutely, they're going to be your highest churn risk because they're paying a lot but not getting a value. So cost is definitely important, but it's cost in relation to the value that customers receive. And that's actually the one metric, if I say, if you want to remember one thing from this podcast or from my entire book, you should make a metric which divides the, the recurring revenue. Say if you charge monthly, divide your monthly charge by the amount of value-creating activity that the customer did. And that will probably be one of your most important metrics for fighting churn. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Are there any other metrics like cost per action that should be at the top of people's vision? That's the most universal one. Because the hard part about that metric is what are, how you identify and define the actions that people get value from. And how do you track that? Well, yeah, it's actually a good point. Well, my whole book and approach assumes that you're already tracking uh, behavior in some kind of data warehouse. And most companies do this. And if you're not actually tracking the user actions, then that's a, like a separate topic. Which And before people are beginners, like who maybe think, oh, I'm, I'm not doing anything. This doesn't mean anything. No, you, you may, you're using Google Analytics probably. Also, if you're using MemorMouse, there's metrics in there that are tracked. If you're using other software, there, there are metrics in there that are probably tracked. You just may not be aware that you're tracking them or using them yet, but don't get concerned. Yeah, I mean, it usually depends, to really do this analysis generally depends on setting up some kind of data warehouse. And I mean, you're usually going to have to pay someone for that. I don't know exactly how, you know, member mouse handles this, but there, there's a lot of companies that do this. Although also, you know, many of the most important uh, metrics aren't necessarily tracked like a login or a video view or a page view. 
for example. I'm sure for member mouse also, but also for Zora, you know, some of our most important metrics are how many subscribers does our customer have? Right. And we just know that. We know how many subscribers our customer have. And that's, of course, one of our most important metrics, like you said. Right, because that shows how they're getting value. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, if somebody's making 100,000 times what they're actually paying you, it's a no-brainer. There's no reason for yeah. them, you know, to go anywhere. <laughs> the other really important metrics, I mean, there are some that are good, but they're, they're more contextual. Well, going back to the pricing thing for a second, you know, we, you talked through how, you know, if, if you have different pricing tiers, then in a lot of cases, the people paying more, you know, they churn less. But there's a lot of products where there's only one price. There's one product, there's one price. So these people also come to churn and say, oh, is my price too high? In that situation where there is only one price. Yeah, it's, it's actually, uh, it's a little dead end in the analytic area where if right. everyone's paying the same price, you can't actually determine the impact of price. That said, it's pretty rare that everyone's paying exactly the same price. Usually there's some discounts, so you might be able to do the analysis anyway. But if, any, if everyone's paying the same price, then it just becomes a matter of, are they using the service enough? There's also, I mean, it's, it goes outside the scope of the churn analysis, but there's also, you know, you, you can't drop your other sources of information. You should be analyzing your competitors in your market and using that information too. Now, when you did your those 12 studies on analytic studies on some of the customers Aura, were there any findings that through those studies that surprised you or that were like, oh, this is really interesting or something that was discovered in that process for you? Well, kind of in the earlier years of, sure. of doing this. I mean, the whole thing we just talked about, about pricing. The first time I ever analyzed a customer's pricing and I was like, huh, people who pay more are churning less. You know, me and the people who were there on that team at the time, we had to think about that one because we had never really thought about it before. And once we thought it through, it made perfect sense. And we came up with the idea of using the price per action metric. So when we first came up with that, that was like, wow, really cool. Of course, that was years ago now. (laughs) More recently, I mean, there are some things that a lot of people will know about, but I'll mention it, one of those here. Uh, If you do a metric for something like if your service offers downloads or reports, you can make metrics which look at how much a behavior changes in time. That's another type of metric. So your basic metric is, how many reports do you run per month? And then a more advanced metric is what percent has your reporting changed? Are you reporting more or reporting less? Mm-hmm. And also for, you know, the, the example I was going to make was downloads. Is the person downloading more or less than they did, say, one month ago or three months ago? Um, anyway, it's often the case that spikes in downloads or reports indicate a future churn. Interesting. And the reason is pretty obvious that, you know, if someone's kind of getting their last binge in, like let's say it's Netflix, right? If someone's really binging on their Netflix, hmm, maybe they're trying to finish that season before they cancel, you know? Right. But it can be the same on a product, maybe like Member Mouse. I don't know if you have like some reporting features, you know, if someone's thinking about churning, they're probably going to, oh, they're going to run a bunch of reports, you know, download their data, right, before they turn the lights out. 
Right. So spikes in certain types of activity are often um, a churn predictor. Although to me, they're not, that's not the most interesting because those kinds of churn predictors, they're really important, but they're really tactical, right? That just tells you, oh, this one customer is probably going to churn because they're downloading a bunch of stuff. But there's nothing really strategic in that. You know, the ones about value creation are really the more strategic kind of metrics. And it's usually the most, I mean, it's the most interesting for me. Um, but they all have a role in fighting churn. I mean, one thing that you've probably seen over the course of this interview is you really need a multi-pronged approach because you've got your payment-based churns, which you can reduce by retrying the card or updating the card number. Then you've got you know this whole spectrum of voluntary churns where you have a range of strategies, improve the product, make sure the customers know how to use the product, make sure they're on the right pricing plan, so there's a whole spectrum of responses as well. Yeah, it's uh, running a business. <laughs> there's a lot to it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, certainly appreciate you sharing all this with us. And so we've alluded to a number of times throughout this conversation that you've written a book on this. So you, can you tell us a little bit about the how that came about for you? Uh, well, I should say I'm still writing the book. I've written about half of it at this point, but the good news is my publisher, which is Manning Publications, uh, if you're not familiar with them, they have a whole line of computer uh, and technology books. They've been in the business something like 20 or 30 years making books on computers and technology, Manning Publications. But so they do electronic early release editions. So you can now get the first two chapters of the book and the third chapter is already queued up and I don't know, it should be up any day now. Uh, I'm waiting for that to hear from that. So by the time, if you're listening to this podcast, by the time you're listening to it, there's probably three chapters out. Uh, And then when you get the electronic edition, you'll get one new chapter every month. Like you can get Kindle or EPUB format. Awesome. How did I come to it? I mean, you kind of asked me that. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast about how do you become a first-time author <laughs> you have to decide to do it <laughs> well yeah i guess yeah it's a little bit broad <laughs> i guess um the more question i think would be valuable for here is you probably wrote it because you saw a need right you had something yeah. to say and you saw a need so where were you seeing the biggest need like who's the person who could benefit most from this information? Well, the book, I should emphasize, it's basically a technical book. So it's got programming. Uh, there's some amount of data science in it. So, But the person who the book is really written for is someone who's like a database administrator or someone in IT or just, you know, you have to know how to program, right? But let's say you know how to program, but you're not really a data scientist. And you get called up by your company, hey, we got to figure out why people are churning. Can you help us crunch the data? Right. But you don't have any background. So I just felt like I had made so many mistakes in the early years of doing these churn analyses. I should mention it's not, I haven't done one dozen, I've done, you know, many dozens <laughs> over the right. years. Um, so I made so many mistakes early on, and the whole method of mine evolved over the years. I mean, I started out like probably most data scientists would with a very machine learning and AI oriented approach. 
But over the time I, of talking to customers, they were like, no, we can't use this. We need information. We need knowledge. So I completely reoriented my approach towards you know, knowledge discovery and communication rather than just AI. Right. But I made all those mistakes over my first two to three years of doing this. And it's only in the last you know, one to two years that I felt like you know, we really have a solid method down. And when I realized that, I was just like, wow, you know, if I could have read a book about this four years ago, it would have made my life so much easier. <laughs> so yeah. I just felt like, you know, well, no one's written that book yet. I should contribute my knowledge and hopefully other people will, will find it useful. <laughs> if, you, if you don't know That's this great. already, there, there's not a lot of money in writing a, a programming book. <laughs> the, the author's royalties are not really that much. So it's really a labor of love just to, you know. Sure get this out there. That's great. Well, I'm sure that anybody who ends up in that situation where they get that phone call is going to be very appreciative. I know that there have been many books like that for me in my programming career where you can pick up that book and benefit from somebody's experience and do what in two hours, what would have taken you months Yeah, um, because you have those perspectives. As a final thing, you're aware that kind of our audience is probably people running subscription membership sites, smaller businesses. Do you have any final messages from them from your experience in terms of things that maybe that they can take away from this? Also, things that maybe we didn't talk about already? I mean, the most important message is you have to do something about churn. Because, <laughs> right. you know, hoping is not a way to mitigate churn. You, you've got to pay attention to it. Even if you don't have the resources to do a lot, just getting the basic knowledge in front of your team can really help you with some of the, the strategic decisions, even if you don't do a really advanced analysis like I explain in the book. So just something is better than nothing. <laughs> That's the most yeah, important thing. Exactly. Now. And something measurable, something that you can yeah. put up there. And as you try these experiments, determine if you're going in the right direction and then adapt. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us, myself included, we have feelings about what might change something and then we try that and then it may or may not work but if we're not measuring it in some way it kind of is a wasted opportunity because now what do we do after that you try again and you're just guessing yep doing it with uh, data-driven decisions absolutely the right way awesome well thanks again carl for coming on I really appreciate you taking the time yeah it's my pleasure i really enjoyed talking with you all right that's a wrap for this episode of the subscription entrepreneur podcast I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carl and are walking away with some valuable information about how you can fight churn in your business. You can find a full transcript, the show notes, information about Carl's book, and links to all the resources mentioned in today's episode at subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 129. Many thanks to Carl for coming on the show and to you for being here and listening to this entire episode. If you'd like to learn more from Carl, be sure to visit his site at fightingturnwithdata.com. For more interviews with successful entrepreneurs, experts, and authors, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We'll see you next time.